We started this podcast as a simple commitment between Casper and me. Once a week, we would sit in a room and treat Harry Potter as sacred, even if no one showed up. Now, we have 70,000 listeners we never could have imagined. We also now have Maggie, who makes sure that all of our local groups feel supported. We have Megan, who makes sure that we behave with integrity in the world. We have Chelsea, who produces the women of Harry Potter. And we have Ariana, who makes sure that every episode, every live show, everything we put out into the world is done to the highest possible standard. We make sure that we pay all of them a living wage. We are trying to be the change we want to see in the world. We are trying to only use fair trade merchandise products to give health care to all of our employees and pay time off. We are trying to save in order to plant a tree for every flight that we take. And we cannot be the company that every company should be without your support. With 70,000 listeners and 1,300 supporters on Patreon, that means that 2% of you support us on Patreon, and we are so grateful for your support. But we want to make it 3% of our listeners who support us on Patreon, which would mean 2,100 supporters. For $1 a month, you get an extra few minutes of bloopers. That's $1 a month for the feeling of being in the top 3% of our listeners. That level of success would even make Hermione happy. So join us. Be part of the top 3%. Join Casper and me in that room that gets more and more filled the more of you show up. We are so grateful that you are part of this community. I'd have sat in that room with Casper alone gladly, but I love having you here. Chapter 14, The Unforgivable Curses. The next two days passed without great incident, unless you counted Neville melting his sixth cauldron in potions. Professor Snape, who seemed to have attained new levels of vindictiveness over the summer, gave Neville detention. I'm Casper Terkyle. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Today we're joined by Mike McHarg, better known as Science Mike, who is an amazing author, podcaster and speaker who wrote a fabulous book, Finding God in the Waves, and hosts a show called Ask Science Mike and the fabulous Liturgist podcasts, of which I'm a big fan. So welcome to the show, Mike. Oh, it's really awesome to be here. <laughs> I literally, I'm so into Harry Potter that when we do liturgies in churches, we read from the Bible and the Harry Potter series alongside each other. So the title of the podcast is completely literal in, in our work. So, <laughs> Well, Mike, we're excited to dig into some of your work and think about the theme of transformation together, but we're going to ask you to open with a story. Sure. I guess I just roll the clock back to when I was seven years old, and I was a fat kid. I had just the jiggliest little belly that I kept hidden under Hawaiian shirts. I had copper red hair that I wore in a bowl cut. And I loved science fiction and computer programming. And none of that was the recipe for popularity in the 1980s. I mean, I was such a slow child physically. Uh, I ran slow. I couldn't jump high. I couldn't do pull-ups. And I was clumsy. I fell over a lot, much to the delight of my classmates. And I was also slow, in the words of my teachers, at learning. I had incredible difficulty learning to read and to write. And that meant that my experience with my peers was marked by cruelty, that I understood other children primarily as a source of bullying and antagonizing me, and to some degree, mentally, physically, and emotionally torturing me. But then suddenly, by some miracle, I started to get taller and thinner. And by the time I was in high school, I was six feet tall, rail thin. And the way I'd marched to my own drummer as a child went from being strange to cool because for teenagers, nonconformity is amazing, right? And when people think about this series, everyone talks about brave Harry, brilliant Hermione, or gregarious Ron. But the character that's always spoken to me is Neville Longbottom, 
Because in this series, I see Neville struggle with everything other children find easy. He has trouble fitting in. But this this ostracization, this marginalization that he experiences makes him brave. And that braveness, that fearless nature to Neville that we see develop in this series was shaped by early trauma. We learn in this chapter of the book that his parents were tortured to madness by an unforgivable curse. What children go through at the hands of their peers in bullying is truly unforgivable. I wrestled with depression and suicidal tendencies well into my adult years. Bullying leaves a mark on the human psyche every bit as powerful as Crucio. But it also transforms us. Our broken places as children can turn us into truly powerful adults. Neville will always stand up to his friends and ultimately to the world's most powerful enemies because of what he believes is right. And it's because he was transformed by pain and rejection into something strong and unique, just like everyone else who survived bullying. Mm. I was so struck, Mike, by the fierce identification with Neville, especially, you know, Vanessa and I have talked about this on the podcast as well, like our experience of being bullied. You're nearly allergic to seeing injustice elsewhere. And I think, you know, I would never want to say that bullying gives gifts. But I think one of the things that that I've definitely learned from being in a marginalized situation is that you're you're able to recognize it more quickly when it's happening elsewhere. And I love that you're drawing us to Neville, especially in this chapter, because we have this very intense moment where Moody slash Crouch is using these unforgivable curses. And the Crucio curse, as you say, has this enormous impact on Neville because he is recognizing what his own parents have been through in a room where most of the other people are seeing it as a sort of curiosity horror show rather than something that's deeply personally connected. So I'm wondering if how you make sense of that, that there's a gift in the wound or something like that, which ultimately allows us to do things and see things that we might otherwise not have seen. Well, I've made my whole life about making people who feel pushed out feel welcome. I mean, that's the animating energy behind literally everything I do in my work. And that absolutely unequivocally comes from sitting at the edge of the classroom and fearing all the other children. That absolutely comes from being the strange kid at church that everyone tolerates but doesn't accept. I don't have any tolerance for people to be on the outside. If people are on the outside, I'm going to go join them on the outside and make the outside the new inside. <laughs> I mean, it's just, I can't, I can't mm. tolerate it. But, you know, I was in London touring with my book recently, and my wife and I went to go see Wicked. And there are themes in that musical about bullying. And I had a completely different experience in that room than my wife did because I was so provoked by my previous trauma <laughs> in relation mm. to that story that I was moved to pretty intense tears. And as I reread this chapter, I couldn't help but <laughs> compare that moment in London in a theater to Neville watching a, a spider suffer mm. and relating to that in a way that no one else in the room could simply because of the way that kind of pain was personal to him. And yeah, so we, I wouldn't call what happens from bullying a gift, but I would say out of the ashes of bullying, something beautiful can rise. And, it, and it, it is a direct result of suffering, but the result of that suffering can be an ability to aid others in suffering less. What I'm wondering is, knowing a little bit about your faith and your faith background, how do you feel as though your beliefs have impacted the way that you see that? Because to me, as someone who's Jewish, that sounds to me like a very Christian and beautiful way to see suffering, that you went through something terrible, but you rose from it and prevailed through curiosity and kindness. And I'm wondering if that 
rings is true for you, that your faith is part of how you see how you came out of that time? I mean, I'm a, a modern, non-specific Christian kind of on the edges of the organized faith that dominates our political culture. But the way I interpret my faith is actually significantly through the Old Testament prophets, these figures that lament the way that the powerful ignore the needs of those at the edges and those without power and resources. And they lament that, and they describe a God that laments that, that can't stand it when the powerful ignore the powerless, and that can't accept praise from people or accept fellowship from humanity if humanity fails to reconcile those power dynamics. And then as a Christian, I see that perspective portrayed in the entire story of Jesus. Jesus consistently spoke of the importance of lifting up people who found themselves under the heel of society. And that's really what keeps me in the Christian faith, is that accountability that God is with us most when we lower ourselves and we invite all humanity together as equals. Mike, one of the big transformations that I am going to be excited to dig into today is thinking about the continuous transformation that is happening through the polyjuice potion and what it means to be looking at Moody, but knowing that it's Barty Crouch who's teaching the students. And I'm, I'm just wondering what you make of the fact that Barty Crouch takes care of Neville after the classroom scene. I think that we can get into Barty Crouch's potential pedagogy later, but the striking moment to me is if we are thinking of Moody as transformed Barty Crouch, what compels him to take care of Neville? This was one of the most upsetting flips for me in the whole series <laughs> because <laughs> I fell in love with the Moody as presented in the Goblet of Fire. I just fell in love with him. I was so excited that Harry finally had this consistent presence in his life that had seen it all and that chose to invest in children, even if it was just for a year. This person with incredible wisdom and life experience was investing himself completely in the next generation and the tenderness with which he pulls Neville aside. Oh, man, it was beautiful. And... Once the book develops and we find out that this is Barty Crouch Jr., I had to wrestle with how many of those moments were genuine and how many of those moments were performative. Right. And then what impact does that have on Neville and Harry as they process this this prior year? I think we're all experiencing that like right now. In our culture, we can't go a day without another major scandal coming out about a public figure that many people trust. It's like Polyjuice Potion is everywhere in our culture, and it's forcing <laughs> us all to undergo this same retroactive introspection about our life experiences, searching for what is real and for what is not. And there's a beautiful transformation that's a personal transformation from growth in life, and then there's a more insidious transformation that comes when people pretend to be what they are not, and eventually the mask falls off, and it betrays the trust of mm. many, many people at once. That's so powerful. Yeah. I mean, that, that resonates so much. And in a way, I think that's also what happens with texts. You know, in this case, we're dealing with something from the plot that we know is now different from the first reading. But even thinking about J.K. Rowling on Twitter, like there are so many intertextual conversations between an audience and a text or an audience and an author where things become problematic or difficult or different from what they seem. Yeah. And what both of you just made me think of is I know that we've heard from a lot of listeners several weeks ago now who have felt very betrayed by J.K. Rowling's announcement of sort of, you know, absolving Johnny Depp of pretty grave sins. And my response has been one of absolute relief that we have the freedom of treating the text as sacred, separate from J.K. Rowling, while also 
deeply troubled by the fact that we are in the middle of this really difficult conversation culturally as to how much we can separate the art from the artist. And I'm wondering if maybe the best way to deal with the question around what J.K. Rowling did with Johnny Depp is to grapple with those types of questions within the text. And I think that there aren't easy answers to these things. I think that they are deeply complicated things. And regardless of who Moody is in this moment, this is a true kindness that he does to Neville. Hmm. I think it's important that as our beloved public role models and mentors turn out to be real people, <laughs> flawed people, uh, in many cases, bad people that really, really terrible behaviors that we have to sift back through our past and accept that which helped us grow and find insight and take those things at face value because the impact was good for us, regardless of the intents of a potentially bad actor. And I think it's important that we look at these moments where beloved people let us down as opportunities to look at ourselves and our own lives and see ways that we may be unconsciously contributing to things in society that we don't actually approve of. And I think if anything great can be gleaned from a polyjuice-fueled Alistair Moody or Johnny Depp or any public figure who has hurt us is that the best way forward for all of us is to try to be more honest, more self-aware, more compassionate people who, when we wrong others, make sincere and genuine effort to create reconciliation and restitution with the one that we've harmed. Yeah. So, Mike, thank you so much for joining us today. And I, I want to share a little bit about the fabulous work that you do in your podcasting life, knowing that you really bridge this divide in a way I think we do as well of people who, you know, have an active faith life and people who are not at all religious, but are interested in life's big questions. Can you talk a little bit about what you love about the shows that you do and where people can find out more? Yeah, our show is designed to model radical inclusivity. So my favorite thing is that we have conservative evangelicals and pretty militant atheists in the same audience with spiritual and not religious people. We have a large <laughs> age mix. We have an audience that is majority female. And we're trying to model healthier media and genuine discussion, especially for people who we would call spiritually frustrated or homeless. If you'd like to check out the work that we're doing, you can search iTunes for The Liturgist or visit us at theliturgist.com slash podcast. Thank you so much, Mike. We're so glad that you're with us. Oh, it has been a joy. Thank you. So, Casper, we got into some of the details with Science Mike about the chapter. So, basically, you had a Cliff's Notes for going first for a 30-second recap. I will do my best to use it to my advantage. Okay. Are you ready? Yeah. On your mark. Get set. Go. Okay, so really all of this chapter is about a lesson that happens in Moody's classroom where he introduces the three unforgivable curses. Um, Crucio and, uh, Ava, Ava, uh, oh my gosh, the killing curse and the controlling curse. And it's very scary and Neville has like a horrible reaction to it and everyone's kind of intrigued and amazed and Hermione, Hermione knows them, of course, because she's really smart. Um, and then because Neville's so traumatized, Moody goes to look after him um, and um, Harry's really angry that Sirius is going to come back because he's worried. I went totally blank on the curses. And I disagree with your thesis statement that that's like the thing that happens. But All right. Well, let's hear your version. Okay. You'll hear my version. All right. Here we go. Three, two, one. 
Go. So they are very excited about Defense Against the Dark Arts. They go, and Moody is sort of weird, and um, Neville gets traumatized by it, and Hermione is like, what are you doing? You're, you're really upsetting him. And everybody thinks she's talking about the spider, but she's talking about Neville. And then um, they go to divination, and they are like, oh, I'm going to die in all these tragic deaths. And Hermione starts S-P-E-W, or spew, and Ron is like, that's hilarious. And Fred and George are off in the corner working on a letter. And, um, and Snape is really upset that he doesn't have the Defense Against the Dark Arts job. Snape just can't get over that. Come on, Snape. I mean, I have a transformation theory on that. He's like, ah, I've changed and no one's noticing. (laughs) It's like, I'm wearing a new dress. Come on, I want a compliment. Right, exactly. (laughs) And you're like, no, it's still just you with your bad personality. It was never your dress that we didn't like. (laughs) So, Casper, I want us to start where we sort of left off with science, Mike, but to like really hone in on this question of transformation. I'm wondering what you make of the fact that it is both Moody and Barty Crouch Jr. who take care of Neville in this moment. The thing that I'm wondering about is, do you think that it is possible that Barty Crouch Jr. has become more empathetic because he is in such a wounded man's body? I would imagine that when you use polyjuice potion, you feel the pain of the person whose body you're in. And to some extent, we see that in the text because he can use Moody's magical eye. and But he's missing an eye. He has a peg leg. He has all of these scars up and down his body. And I'm wondering if we make meaning of the fact that he's compassionate to Neville in this moment, in part, perhaps, because he's this transformed both self or how how we make meaning of that. Yeah, I think there's really something to this idea that he's impacted in how he's responding to situations because he has been transformed into Moody's body. He's being treated as Moody so much. So I I feel like there might be some personality transference even, not just from his experience in Moody's body, but how other people are treating him, the way he's lifted up as this incredible warrior, and the way in which people see him as a little bit as a loon, you know, someone who's marginalized for still really living in the past. And so many of those things, I think, are true for Barty Crouch Jr. too. He's holding on to allegiances from a long time ago, for more than a decade. He was a very skilled and is still a very skilled dark wizard. And he was this kind of warrior for evil, but nonetheless a very skilled fighter. So I can imagine that transference happens quite a lot. And part of me wonders, like, maybe he actually enjoys teaching. And particularly in this moment with Longbottom, who of course comes from a pure blood wizard family, so isn't inherently repulsive to someone like Barty Crouch Jr. I wonder if he regrets the Longbottom's allegiance to people who who support muggle wizard equality. He kind of longs to bring perhaps this young man under his wing and shift his thinking. Also, if we are thinking of him as just Barty Crouch Jr., you know, we can take these lines of like, but you have to see on face value, right? Because he wants people to see how strong dark magic is. He wants people to potentially come over to the dark side quickly because it's like, see the weapons that we have, see what you're up against. But I think that this gets to the heart of transformation, which is that we are always constantly changing and we don't know what we are tapping into at any moment when we are behaving. We don't know. There's this belief that we can change entirely. And I do believe that people can change But I think that one of the hard things about transformation is that it is never complete. We can't ever completely transform. Well, I think this gets to really the challenge of the word transformation, because this is the difference between growth or or change and transformation. You know, growth and change, the old is still recognizable in the new, right? The things have molded slightly or they've adapted or or they've grown or shrunk, but ultimately you can still recognize what used to be. And with transformation, the idea is that it is a complete change. And, And that's what I think is so challenging here is that for all the eyes to see, it really is a full transformation. There is nothing apart from the polyjuice potion drinking throughout the books. There's really nothing that would suggest that this is Body Crouch Jr. throughout these pages. So it it does feel like the transformation is complete. And I think that's what makes the, the turn at the end so difficult. And I, I was thinking, you know, do we ever see Crouch Jr. in Moody's body be fully 
Crouch Jr. And of course, we do at the end. So that theory doesn't quite hold up. And so maybe what we're seeing in Moody Crouch through these pages is a false transformation. It's it's an illusion. The core has not transformed totally, which leaves that remnant of evil still present. Well, so my question for you is, do you believe in transformation? Are there things in the world that totally transform? And you're going to answer with like a very obvious thing that I haven't thought of, and I'm going to feel like an idiot. But I'm not sure that I believe in incomplete transformation, right? I guess the example I think of is is a classic caterpillar into a butterfly where there's one creature that crawls into the cocoon and spins the cocoon around it. And there is an in-between phase where there's just mush inside the cocoon and out comes the butterfly. I mean, it's a classic. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I do think it's possible even, you know, on a very small level, perhaps our transition from sleeping into waking every morning. We are completely unconscious of ourselves during the sleeping hours, either in dreamland or just completely absent. And yet we kind of re-inhabit consciousness of our body when we wake up. And I don't know, I I guess I I want to hold on to that notion that that complete change is possible, even if it is like this case with Moody, maybe just an illusion. What about you? The quote that keeps coming to mind, you're going to be shocked because it's actually quite an optimistic one, is Carl Sagan's idea that we are all made of star stuff. And it it's a humanistic way of understanding that we're all connected to one another, that, you know, it's the same atomic structures that make the stars that make each of us and that we're all made of the same stuff. And because of that, to some extent, I don't totally believe in transformation I, because I believe that there is something worth holding on to from our past, no matter what. I think that there is something beautiful and true that I'm like, but I, you know, I, I don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. I want to hold on to something from everything and therefore I don't want complete transformation. Or maybe what it's speaking to is that there's always grief in true transformation, because if you're going to entirely transform, you have to lose that beautiful, true thing from before and create something beautiful and truer, hopefully. But true transformation, I think, has in it inherent sadness. Yeah, I do agree with you that that need for memory is something that holds a a bridge to the past. And I, I guess In some way, I wonder if the question of transformation is as much about our wanting to be transformed or not, because sometimes we can use new information to build a whole new tableau of of a memory. Do you know what I mean? Like, I feel like there's agency in transformation, which is more than just what happens to us. I like that we are seeing this from different sides and yet both from very optimistic points of view. I don't totally want to believe in transformation because I want to hold on to what is beautiful and true. And you believe in transformation because you want the most beautiful, most true thing to possibly emerge. I think that that's lovely and matters. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Quip. Harry Potter and the Sacred Text listeners, I don't want to scare you, but three members of the Not Sorry Productions team have recently lost a tooth. Now, none of this was because of bad brushing. It was because of accidents that happened. But I am concerned about people who love Harry Potter and their teeth. Quip's electric toothbrush can help you in your routine of keeping your teeth healthy and sparkling clean. The mirror mount for your Quip toothbrush puts brushing front and center in your bathroom, so you'll remember to bookend the day using your new brush. The built-in two-minute timer that pulses every 30 seconds to remind you when to switch sides and help you clean your whole mouth makes sure that you brush for the entire two minutes. The multi-use cover is amazing, it works as a stand, and also helps with sanitary reasons. Brush heads are automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended schedule of every three months for just $5. A friendly reminder as to when it's time to refresh and stay committed to your oral health. Please, this is a public service announcement from somebody who has all of her teeth and who loves a lot of people who have recently lost one tooth. Brush your teeth. Quip makes it easy and fun to brush your teeth, and that is why I love Quip and why it's perfect for getting back into a routine after the summer. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to 
Amazon.com slash Harry Potter right now, you can get your first refill pack for free. That's your first refill pack for free at G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash Harry Potter. My brother and sister-in-law have a fig tree, and it makes me sad because I live 3,000 miles away from the fig tree, and I love figs. I think they are like proof of a higher being. Now, I resent them less because due to Fleur's amazing Hanami scent, I get to smell like the fig tree. They make stunning, non-toxic perfumes, and they list all of their ingredients online. You get a good scent made with clean ingredients. And the sample process is just good old fun. Here at Harry Potter and Sacred Text, we actually got to put together our own Fleur sample set filled with our favorite scents. So if you're not sure where to start, make sure that you check that out. And definitely try to smell like my brother and sister-in-law's fig tree with the Hanami scent. Then when I meet you, I'll love you more because you'll smell like home. Go to Fleur.com slash Harry Potter today to check out our curated sample set and get 20% off of your first custom Fleur sample set. That's P-H-L-U-R dot com slash Harry Potter to get your first three Fleur fragrance samples at 20% off. Fleur.com slash Harry Potter. Is there somewhere else in this chapter where you saw this theme of transformation? Yeah, I know that we joked about it, but I would like to talk about the purgatory that Snape lives in. You know how I am want to sympathize with Severus Snape ever. But it just did occur to me, you know, that the students have their theory that the reason that Snape is in such a bad mood is because he didn't get the defense against the dark arts job. And we don't know if that's true, but I'm like willing to believe that theory. I know we've said this before, but it just has to be hard to be living as a double agent to feel like you have given up so much and to still feel punished and seen as a death eater and for your worst mistakes. It just has to feel so hard. I mean, I remember I went through a period as a child of being like really not nice to my little brother. And I felt like I had outgrown that phase and was incredibly kind to my little brother. And my parents would still say, you're so mean to him. I felt so betrayed by that. It was like, you're not seeing me for who I am. I did that and it was terrible, but I haven't been mean to him for years. Mm. And I understand that they like grew protective of him during that phase and so started to see it. But it felt so frustrating to feel as though I'd put the effort into transforming and it wasn't being acknowledged. And so I empathize with Snape in that. Yeah, absolutely. Like when you're judged as a human being for your worst mistake and that, and that kind of shapes your life. Yeah. I actually think this touches on a really, I don't know if it's silly, but... I was really sitting with this phrase, constant vigilance, that Moody keeps telling his students and keeps telling the world, constant vigilance. And I thought, first of all, that that speaks to this question of Snape is that, you know, we constantly have to see one another anew, like whether you're in a relationship, whether you're in a family, it's not enough to keep looking at someone as if they were in the past, because it doesn't allow for their growth and transformation. And it also limits our relational transformation, right? I, I always think about that time, especially around the holidays, when you're with your family, and you have the intention of being the grown person that you are and mature, and you come back and everyone turns back into their 10 year old self, right? So we, we need to be constantly vigilant to see each other for who we are now. But also I thought of it as kind of like the Buddha arriving in crouch slash moody form. Like it's all about this present moment. It's about experiencing the now, right? We need constant vigilance, constant appreciation for this moment, for this moment, for this moment. So I feel like we've uncovered a secret meditation teacher in the pages of this chapter. <laughs> oh, I love that. Constant vigilance as a as a mantra. Right. I could just imagine like people walking through, I don't know, like their office on the way to the printer and just being like, constant vigilance. Mm, the feeling of my shoe on this soft carpet. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was picking between this moment to bless or not. So I'll just talk about it now, which is the vigilance and attention that Hermione is paying to Neville in this moment. I think shows a transformation in Hermione. She's not paying attention to the lesson. She is not watching what is happening to the spider. Instead, she has this moment of like, stop it, you're hurting him, you're hurting him. And everybody thinks she's talking about the spider, but she's talking about Neville. That I think shows 
Hermione's a constant vigilance to things other than the sleight of hand being done before her, but also that she is really transformed, right? She's always Mm. been caring toward Neville. And to some extent, we even saw in the last book that she's willing to get into trouble to help Neville in potions. But I think that she's just becoming a more and more empathetic person and less and less obsessed with being perfect in school Right, is she's watching a fellow classmate rather than the lesson. Yeah. So, Casper, there is one more thing I, we just have to talk about before we move on, which is the founding of SPEW. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we see Hermione has been going to the library all the time on her own, no surprise. And we really learn what it's all about. She's been making these badges. She's set up a whole uh, governance system with a secretary and a treasurer. And by founding SPEW, she is really kind of taking her disgust with the discovery of the house elves working, perhaps enslavement in Hogwarts to the next level. What I found interesting was that, you know, we've talked a little bit about Harry's narrative arc of moving from a sense of isolation and feeling like he needs to do things on his own and and not expecting people to help him and go through these novels to learn to depend on others, to to involve other people in his life and his struggles, which, you know, we've already seen him do by writing that letter to Sirius in this book as we are now halfway through the, the seven book arc. And it was interesting to me to see Hermione echo some of those challenging traits of she doesn't involve the boys in thinking about the governance structure or thinking about the kind of manifesto that she creates. But she does involve the boys in giving them these roles once they've been designed. And of course, they're going to be very resistant to that. And more importantly than that, she doesn't at all involve any of the house elves in that work. So I'm just thinking about the transformation of young activists. And when I was, gosh, 13, 14, maybe a little older than that, and was learning about some of the global justice issues around poverty and trade systems. Systems, I absolutely did the same thing that Hermione did and, and kind of went all in telling other people what they should do differently, mostly my dad. But, you know, just didn't have the, I guess, the, the maturity or the understanding to think more holistically. And that transformation will come with Hermione. But I think we see some of those echoes. I don't know if that struck you in the same way. So I completely agree with all of that. The thing I want to say, though, is that I do think that she shows us in this like teeny tiny scene, sort of two different theories of transformation, which is one, the transformation can sometimes happen in an instant. You're not a parent and then you deliver a baby and you're a parent, right? The way that parents often talk about it is like it was just me and then there was me and another person. Right. And I feel like we see that when Hermione, um, Harry and Ron are like, how many members do you have? And she says, if you join, three. And I just love the idea that like in an instant, this can go from a one person club to a (laughs) 200% growth and like how quickly that can change. It can go from just Hermione to actually being a club. But then I love when Ron is like, how is this going to help? the house elves like what are we going to do and she says we start by recruiting members and that to me speaks to an understanding that like transformation and change happens slowly that we want a revolution and like the first thing we have to do is just like the tedious work of collecting dues and recruiting members but we see the effort that she's putting into SPEW really pay off when in just a few books she's going to have to help start Dumbledore's army right so yeah I think we're watching Hermione fail, but also we're watching her transform and we're also sort of hearing her theory of change. I love that. And I love that both are true at the same time. I think that's so important because as you say, with giving birth, it's that singular moment of suddenly there's a baby in your arms. And at the same time, there's this whole gestation period of nine months that comes beforehand. And yet both are true and both are different. It's that kind of, you know, polarity of two different things both being true that are opposite. And I I think that's such a helpful thing to remember when you're in the midst of something, whether it's tiresome or boring, but it's part of this bigger important thing that both are true at the same time. And even in our own lives, if, you know, may- maybe we react in a way that is counter to how we wanted to. Maybe we get angry or stressed when we wanted to be calm and collected. You know, it's in this bigger arc, perhaps, of us being more responsive with care and compassion. But in this moment, you know, we fell short. I find that so helpful because I think we all fall short now and then. And-, and to remember that it's within this bigger arc of change is comforting, if nothing else. I never fall short. I'm perfect. <laughs> 
<laughs> I know. That's why I like to hang around with you. So, Vanessa, we are doing sacred imagination once again. And just as a reminder, this is the practice where we try and embody ourselves into the text by, you know, being a fly on the wall of a scene or perhaps being embodied in one of the characters in the scene and really trying to experience the fullness of our five senses. So I'm going to read a passage. And if you're in a place where you can safely and comfortably close your eyes, I'm going to encourage you to do that. It's towards the end of this chapter when Hedwig arrives with some post. The silence was broken not by Ron, who in any case looked as though he was temporarily dumbstruck, but by a soft tap-tap on the window. Harry looked across the now-empty common room and saw, illuminated by moonlight, a snowy owl perched on the windowsill. Hedwig, he shouted, and he launched himself out of his chair and across the room to pull open the window. Hedwig flew inside, soared across the room, and landed on the table on top of Harry's predictions. About time, said Harry, hurrying after her. She's got an answer, said Ron excitedly, pointing at the grubby piece of parchment tied to Hedwig's leg. Harry hastily untied it and sat down to read it, whereupon Hedwig fluttered onto his knee, hooting softly. What does it say? Hermione asked breathlessly. The letter was very short and it looked as though it had been scrawled in a great hurry. Harry read it aloud. Harry, I'm flying north immediately. This news about your scar is the latest in a series of strange rumours that have reached me here. If it hurts again, go straight to Dumbledore. They're saying he's got Mad-Eye out of retirement, which means he's reading the signs, even if no one else is. I'll be in touch soon. My best to Ron and Hermione. Keep your eyes open, Harry. Serious. That was such a like strong experience for me. I was Harry and I was so excited to see Hedwig and then so terrified by this response. Terrified and guilty of like, what did I send into motion? It was the feeling of like reading an admissions letter and like looking for the words of like, congratulations or we're so sorry and like not really understanding the content of the letter but looking for Mm. the main thing and having Hedwig come as this like symbol of hope and instead just this like gloomy response of this is actually really serious I'm gonna come it was so like anxiety provoking for me what about for you it's so funny because and your reaction is much closer, of course, to, to what happens with Harry. Mine was the other way around. And to be honest, I've been thinking about this for the last couple of days anyway, is that sometimes I find it such a relief when someone else walks into the room and says, I'm in charge and I'm going to deal with this. Like, I find going to the dentist relaxing because they know more than me and they're in charge. <laughs> and I kind of felt like validated in the sense that, you know, the worries that I've had I'm not the only one who's worried. Sirius talks about Mad Eyes coming out of retirement because Dumbledore's asked him, and if Dumbledore's thinking this and Sirius is thinking this, then there is something going on. Of course, that has terrifying consequences because what I'm afraid of is really terrifying. But yeah, I had this kind of, maybe partly because I've been looking for Hedwig for so long, finally seeing her was, was, was a comforting thing. And the fact that Sirius said, keep your eyes open, I don't know, it made me think of Mad-Eye's eyes. It made me think of the basilisk's eyes, you know, how Harry has to not be seen or not look into the eyes of the basilisk. That There's something about being visible, being invisible that really struck me in this passage. It's someone else telling him constant vigilance. Oh, my God. Exactly. I love that. I really like your reading. I I completely agree with you. And I feel like I just learned something about our friendship that we both love it when grownups come into the room. I feel like maybe (laughs) we both project the role of grownup onto the other person. I'm like, ah, Casper's here. (laughs) Everything will be fine. There's someone who knows things. (laughs) But but also when grownups have to get involved, it's a bad thing, right? When it like has to go above your head. It's because things are getting serious. Right. 
There's a great moment in Grey's Anatomy when Izzy, who has had stage four cancer for months and has been like seeing the top oncologist, gets sort of like demoted down to a resident, like a not as good, not as experienced oncologist. And she's like, no, 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 I need to be seeing the top oncologist. And the resident says to her, this is good news. The fact that you no longer need the top oncologist means that your cancer is no longer severe. And I think that that is what worries me about when authorities get involved. I'm like, oh, if the fire department is coming, that means that this isn't just something I could put out with baking soda. So there's a relief of adults, but there's also a, oh no, if the adults have to get involved, this is more severe than I thought it was. Well, and even the adults are still going on incomplete information. I mean, that's the other thing that struck me is that Dumbledore is reading the signs, kind of like Trelawney is reading tea leaves, right? Like, it's not as if even when an adult or the fire department or the top oncologist is in the room, they have all the answers. It's it's the person who has the best guess or the person we think is going to be able to read the signs the best. But it doesn't guarantee safety. It doesn't guarantee, in this case, victory against evil. And in fact, it's going to get a whole lot worse before it gets better. Yeah. This week's voicemail is from Bethy Crow. And even though it's a slightly older voicemail, we still found it very relevant today. Hi, Casper, Vanessa, and Ariana. Um, this is Bethy Crow calling from Spokane, Washington. And I wanted to talk about this past episode that you guys did on destruction and the ways that that can affect our lives, um, sometimes even for the better. And um, this was pretty briefly mentioned, but... I'd like to explore that thought, particularly because of the wildfires in California right now. Um, My entire family lives in Northern California, and that's where I grew up. I'm the only one who is away besides one cousin. And um, over the past three or four days, everybody has had to evacuate. Um, They're all spread out in different directions. We have this massive group text telling us who is where and what's going on and... um, I'm constantly asking myself, like, are they going to need to be evacuated in the middle of the night again? Um, Is the death toll going to rise? Is there another school that's going to be burnt down? And the more that I think about these things, the more I remember just how deeply I love each and every family member that I have. And this has actually been a really, really special time because of that. Um, each of us has grown in our communication over these past three days, and um, I think we've each grown in our understanding of how much we love each other as well. Um, within these days, my cousin's little baby girl stood up for the first time, and because we were all in such close communication, we all uh, got to celebrate that together, and she sent us a video, and it was just so cool to celebrate life in the middle of this deep destruction and to celebrate um, how deeply we each love each other and are connecting to each other, even as everything around us is burning to the ground. So I wanted to uh, kind of give that different perspective of destruction and that it can actually cause some beautiful things. And um, thank you so much for your podcast and all that you do. I love you guys a lot. Bethy, thank you so much for that voicemail. And as Vanessa said, you know, there's still wildfires burning across California at the time that we're recording. and, And it seems to be becoming more of an annual event. The scary climate changed future that was predicted seems to be arriving And I'm grateful that you're able to find some benefit, I guess, in a way of of closer relationship with family and friends because of that. And I think, you know, so often people talk about the Second World War in England as this time when people bandied together, when the kind of perhaps petty rivalries or, or neighborly gossip kind of fell away. And there was this sense of being together in the midst of something tumultuous and dangerous. And that often the best of us comes out in moments of threat and moments of danger. So I am so glad that you have found that. And I'm also so hopeful that it's not necessary for us to be in those times of threat and danger for those most bonding and most loving parts of ourselves to emerge. So Vanessa, it's time for us to bless someone from the pages of this chapter. And I feel that there is a wealth of riches for people who who might take a blessing with them. But who have you chosen this time? 
I struggled so much. There was, it was like an embarrassment of riches. There were so many wonderful moments. But I am going to bless Professor Sprout. So good. She, for some reason, has mentioned to Moody that Neville is good at herbology. And I just love that, like, I'm just envisioning that she's just so proud of Neville and so excited that he's good at it or that she came to his defense. If like Snape is in the faculty room complaining about Neville, Sprout was like, actually, he's like brilliant at herbology. Whatever the circumstances, somebody like delighting in someone else's talent and saying wonderful things about somebody else behind their back is just a good thing. And I would like to offer a blessing for anybody out there who delights in the skills and talents of their loved ones and, you know, shouts them from the rooftops. So a blessing for Professor Sprout and this like beautiful bragging moment about Neville. What about you, Casper? Who would you like to bless? Oh, that's so lovely, especially because Neville doesn't have his mother to be that kind of champion in his daily life. And, and his grandmother is so hard on him. It's so lovely to see. Yeah. I want to bless Harry in the middle of the lesson with the unforgivable curses. There's this moment of great self-awareness that I appreciated in the chapter where Harry feels a thrill of foreboding just before the killing curse. This sense of excitement and wanting to see something frightening or dangerous or destructive. And I feel like you know, we see that in our own lives as well, when, when people slow down to see a car crash on the side of the road, or even just the kind of allure of horror movies. There's something grotesque in our desire to see death, and not, not just something that is dead, but something that is suffering, something that's painful. You know, I think of some of those exploitative images of, you know, people suffering starvation. And I guess I want to bless Harry for tempering that instinctual desire to gaze at suffering. And I want to challenge that temptation, that desire in myself, because pain and death should not be entertainment in the way that I think Harry is wise to, to check himself here. So a blessing for Harry. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and leave us a review on iTunes. We love to read them. You can send us a voicemail to harrypottersacredtext at gmail.com. Next week, we'll be reading Chapter 15, Beaubaton and Dornstrang, through the theme of trauma. This episode was produced by Ariana Nedelman, Casper Terkyle, and Vanessa Zoltan. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll, and we are part of the Panoply Network, where you can find ours and other great shows on panoply.fm. Thanks for this week's voicemail to Bethy Mack, Tahashi Hetege, Rebecca and Charlie Dudley, and Stephanie Porcell. Uh, your scaly dragon body. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Uh, Hey, everybody. This is Drew. I I make a Sleep With Me podcast. We're part of Night Vale Presents. And Sleep With Me is a bedtime story podcast for grownups. So if you're looking for something fun to listen to as you get ready for bed or you need a little extra help falling asleep, someone to take your mind off of stuff, just like calling up a goofy friend and saying, hey, tell me a story. Or putting on some old sitcom on, on Netflix or something. Uh, it's kind of what Sleep With Me aspires to be. It's a little bit goofier and weirder, uh, but it's also a whole lot more fun. You can find it here at Night Vale Presents or uh, just open up your podcast app and search for Sleep With Me. And you'll find it there and subscribe and check it out. Thanks.